Good morning. Uh, I'm, a, I'm excited about today, mostly because, uh, I don't know, I think this weekend uh, was a really big deal. I think sometimes we don't think about that, but I'm really excited to hear uh, what these like 20 or so women come back declaring about who God is and how he's spoken. Uh, and I think that that's a big moment, like that there's that, that kind of chunk of us and, our, and those personalities and those giftings away, uh, you know, swimming in the ocean and going on runs, um, just describing the things Mirella did, uh, and also talking and sharing and praying with one another. Uh, that is always going to lead to some sort of movement within our church, uh, and that's a really big deal. So I'm going to pray for them, even as they come now. I don't think they're doing anything important right now, except you know, cleaning up an Airbnb, which can be stressful. But I'm going to pray for them that what the Spirit has spoken uh, the Spirit will continue to bring alive as they move forward. So, uh, Jesus, we thank you for uh, the, these ladies, particularly Robin and Ashley and Sarah, who have done so much to intentionally create a time of, of going away and, uh, and being together, but also focusing on you, Jesus. And I pray that, that what your Spirit has spoken, they would also uh, live in and delight in. Uh, and that, that those of us that will receive them back into our homes today uh, would do so with, with gladness and an eagerness to hear uh, about you, and that we would all be able to receive the proclamation of the gospel through the voices uh, of these women. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so this morning we're going to continue on in the gospel of Mark. That's a phrase we'll say a lot even for the next six months, probably. Uh, but we're going to continue on in the chapter 6, uh, and we're going to spend two weeks on this chapter. Today, I'm going to really zone in on, on four verses. Uh, I think now I'm worried about the math that I've done. But I think it'll be a few verses, and then, uh, and then next week we'll actually look at the, big, at the whole of this chapter. Uh, but I'm going I'm to read it for us to start. It's, it's Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. So I was way off. Uh, anyway, and he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, but not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. That's today's passage. Uh, Barna, a research and polling organization, like Gallup, but christian uh, I think based out of Fuller Seminary here in Pasadena. But Barna, Barna did a, a research, uh, a polling, a study on what percentage of Christians uh, believe that sharing the gospel is a fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian. So they did this study where they asked people who are Christians, uh, do you think that, Christi- that sharing the gospel is a big part of what it means to be a Christian? What percentage do you think said yes, that it's a big part of what it means to be a Christian? Huh? It's what they poll. The SBC, 
<laughs> just Christians. It was way beyond. It was a, it was a 30%. Okay. What are you saying, Steve? 10? What else? 50. Wow, let's give it to some people. Yeah, any other guesses before I reveal? You'll win a free cup of coffee if you get it right. With really fancy beans, the bag is back there. Don't take it away. Huh? 51. I've got 51. Yes, I was here for the prices, right? That's how you do it. Okay, so, so Ryan, Ryan wins. Uh, give that man a cup of coffee. The, the percentage of people that said, yes, sharing the gospel is a key part of the Christian life was 97%. I'm glad that you were as shocked as I was. As I prepared this, I thought, what if they're not shocked? Uh, I'm, I'm shocked by that as well. Because it really doesn't look like that's actually what's going on in the Christian faith. That 97% of us believe that sharing the gospel is an important part of our life with Christ. It's pretty uh, phenomenal. There's another study that they did about how many people actually do. That's what you thought. Uh, And that percentage, and they split it up by by generations, but if you combine it all together, was 45% of people said they did. I think that uh, it's so shocking because while we might say it's very important, and we can agree, you know, kind of like if they polled everybody, is recycling a good thing, they'd probably get a pretty great result, at least in this city, uh, though the amount of trash that we produce is pretty, like, astounding, right? And there's this big disconnect between what we say is important and then what we actually live out. Like, I don't think that there's that many... Uh, people, Christians, who are saying to themselves, my whole life, everything about it, where I live, who I talk to, how I talk to them, all of that is shaped by this intense need to proclaim what's true about God and the kingdom of Jesus that's come. Like, Like, I don't think that many Christians are waking up each day saying, how could I make the love of God through Jesus made known to the people around me? I think we agree it's important, but then we don't do it. And there's a variety of, of reasons uh, that people give. Uh, this past week, I was in a think tank. I was in a tank thinking. Uh, in my mind, I thought going into it, it would be like a, a, a military tank, and we're on the inside thinking. Uh, a tank of thought instead of a tank of bullets. I don't know. I was really inspired. It was more like they put these people in a room and uh, we thought about problems and solutions to problems, and other people watched. So it was like a fishbowl tank. Some of you already knew that, probably. Andrew already knew that. He's a think tanker. Right? No. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that was fascinating is we came up with some of the reasons of like why, why the church is, is how it is and what's actually going on. You know, there's people that are afraid to live a life like that, where they, every day they wake up thinking, how do I live out the gospel? It also sounds lonely to people. That was someone's suggestion. We're unsure of the strategy of how to do it. We're out of practice. No one's told us what to do or what to say. And those are all really good reasons. And I, and I agree with those reasons. Uh, but I think beneath it all, though, is this this lack of understanding or lack of hearing the very voice of Jesus, whom we proclaim, whom we sing about, we don't hear his voice telling us 
inviting us, calling us into his purpose and his mission. We think of uh, Christianity as there's this big thing, we should tell other people about it. Uh, Even this last week, I heard someone say, you know, well, God's done so much for you, and other people shared so much with you, don't you need to go share it with other people? Uh, And if maybe we get people guilty enough, they'll share the gospel. But I think really we don't hear the loving voice of Jesus calling us to himself and then sending us into the world, inviting us into his mission. And so this morning, I just want us to allow this passage, which comes at this pivotal moment in the the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus has been the one who comes and proclaims, and he's healing people, he's casting out demons. It's been an amazing ride so far, right? Like, what Jesus is doing, like healing uh, people uh, who've been suffering their whole lives, casting out legions of demons, as Jared spoke about last week, even healing people who were dead, like a little girl who was dead, raising them to life. That's pretty awesome. And then Jesus gets these people together that have said, I'm going to follow you. And he's told them they're going to become fishers of men. And he gathers them together and says, now you're going to go out and do this. And so I want us this morning to hear the voice of Jesus, allowing this text to speak to us, not as an idea about what's good for Christianity, but as the very... uh, king of the whole world saying to us, this is what being a citizen of my kingdom is like. Come into it. Be part of this. I hope that we hear his voice and we can understand what we're called to do and what that calling and sending actually looks like. Uh, And I think that at the end we're going to leave knowing uh, that that's uh, with a little bit more certainty. Maybe that's my goal. Slightly more certainty of what it means when Jesus says, come, I'm going to send you. And that is the very first part. The very first couple verses I read are about this coming and this sending. He says that he called the twelve, and then he began to send them out, two by two. This, this word, send, I think for us, it carries this, you know, we, we press a send button all the time in our lives, right? You know, you type up a little memo, and then you click a button, and it's sent. You know, it's out there in the world now. Uh, Some of us should not press send as often as we do, you know? Like, that's a thing in our society. But this word send is completely different than just, like, mailing a letter somewhere or clicking a button. It's this connotation that he is giving them up uh, to be representatives of himself and to have a task that they need to accomplish. So the word is that he's, he's basically commissioning them or appointing them or giving this status of being a person who represents Jesus, the person that we've been talking about these last months. And they're supposed to go out and accomplish a specific task for him. You know, much more like uh, when you uh, have someone who works for you. Some of us are managers. Some of us are, are managed. But whenever you tell someone, hey, I want you to go uh, and talk to this person and do this thing, they're sent there as a representative of you, of your company, of your team. And when they go, they're supposed to accomplish that actual task, right? That makes sense. Like, we all agree with that. Uh, Does that make sense? In theory. Yeah, Yeah, we also have people. It's kind of annoying, right? Uh, When you have a team of people, and if you're the boss, and you say, hey, I need you to send this email or talk to this person or go to this meeting, and then they don't, 
right? That's a little annoying, right? Some might just say, like, this is what your job is. This is what you're paid for. This is, this is your role. But if they don't do it, it's a little irritating. But what Jesus is saying is a little bit more inspiring. He doesn't just call them to himself, but he starts and he continually sends them out as representatives, as ambassadors, as agents, as people that wherever they go and whatever they do, they represent Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God, where the breaking of the world is made whole. They have this incredible task of not just being in the world and kind of showing up and going places, but that everywhere he puts them and places them, they are themselves representatives of Jesus Christ. That they are physically embodiment presentation of Jesus. That's what it means to be an ambassador. And they don't just go there, but they go there with the task. Something to accomplish, something to do. The very next phrase that kind of builds into this calling and this sending reality is that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. This uh, giving is an ongoing word. We, you know, just to be a little dorky about it all... Uh, it's, a, it's an imperfect verb. That Jesus doesn't just give them this one time, you know, like a medal or a gun or a weapon to use or something like that for their task. But he actually continually, ongoingly gives them out this authority over unclean spirits. It's a, it's a delegated authority. Jesus, we, we hear and we see, he's the king of God, of the world. He's, he's accomplished all of these things already just in his arrival. Uh, he has this incredible power and authority over sickness, over death, over the oceans, you know, the seas, the winds, they obey him. He's that kind of God. And he's saying, I'm going to over and over again give you the power and the authority to do that. And it's also very kind of interesting, this idea of delegated authority, especially when you dive into what it meant to be an ambassador or a sent person at that time. But it was that you wouldn't just go into places as a representative or even go with the task, but that what you said and what you did was as if the person that you were sent by was doing and accomplishing. So if you were sent by the emperor of of Rome to go somewhere and to deliver a message to someone else, the very words and the actions that you, you portrayed in that other kingdom was not, hey, this is, this is Joe from Rome telling us some stuff. It was the empire of Rome itself is telling us these things. He's saying, he's making decisions as if it was the king of Rome. This is that delegated authority. The authority to ask and to speak on behalf of God but also knowing that God's presence and power is there to fulfill the requests and the words. I think that's not a power that we really uh, conceive of really having, right? That we ourselves are not just, uh, you know, micro-Jesuses out there in the world, and, and if someone sees us, they see the kingdom. I mean, that seems pretty big and weighty. But this other part that what we speak and what we do that the, that the darkness and the brokenness or whatever situation we come in, we come in not just asking and hoping that something could, could happen, but actually speaking with the authority of the kingdom that has come that's making all things new. Like that is a completely different authority that he's delegating to these people. That whatever they request, 
They have the power to ask for it and the authority to see Jesus accomplish it. And I wonder, you know, do we, do we believe that? I think, you know, if, if they even ask that poll question, you know, do you believe that part of being a Christian is you represent Jesus and the kingdom wherever you go? Or do you believe that wherever you go and whatever darkness or evil or wretchedness you see, you're not speaking words of, of wishful thinking, but speaking authoritative words about God's power to restore everything. I think they would, I mean, that percentage would be super low. I wonder what would happen if we believe that we are in this city and all of the places that we've gone are representatives of that kind of Jesus and that kind of kingdom. Sent here for a task that's bound up in his name, his fame, his victory, as we sang about. If we believe that we're actually sent and that the task that he gives these disciples is the same task for us, which is to see captives set free. People oppressed being able to, to see the light and to, be, to live in freedom. Do we believe we've given the power to enter into the city, not as weaklings, but as, as people that have everything that's required, every ounce that's, that's needed to see this place made new? Uh, I also kind of wonder as I read this as if that sounds beneath us sometimes. Uh, you know, or... or antithetical to why we think we're here, right? Um, didn't we come here to, to be our own agents or find an agent, you know? Like, wouldn't it be cool if we had, you know, an agent that was looking out for us, uh, that was trying to get us a new deal, trying to raise our bar and raise our fame or open doors for us into new avenues? Aren't we here to kind of build our own thing? Isn't there a, a hope in us that when we look back on our careers, we could say, look what I did with all my grit and strong will to accomplish these things. To go with our own power and to be able to say at the end, uh, look what I did with what I had. Right? I am a self-made whatever. And to all of that, Jesus says, come to me, I'm going to be sending you out and giving you over and over the task of being my representative and seeing my kingdom come. The next thing Jesus does is give them instructions, the plan. Uh, and this is, you know, like we've said, it's a big moment. There's been a lot happening. Uh, but this is the first moment where Jesus multiplies all that he's doing uh, six different directions. You know, it's, it's, it's a great idea. You know, Jesus is confined to just one space, and he's going to all of these villages, some responding in different degrees, and then he says, okay, I'm going to split you up into groups of two, and you're all going to go to these different villages, and then we're going to really kind of see something happen. I mean, that's, you know, at the root, some of what we believe here, the way our church is made up, right? That, that we're just not all trying to 
let the whole city see the gospel through us right here in this space, but that we're sent out into groups that embody Jesus and the kingdom in all of these different areas. It's a great strategy. But then he gives them the, the deep kind of instructions of what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to operate. And the big plan for Jesus, the big methodology, is take nothing. I guess what it says uh, in, uh, in the Bible here. He charged them to take nothing. To go empty-handed. They're supposed to go to all these villages and say, look, the king of the world, Jesus, this guy you haven't met yet before, but he has all authority and all power, and I'm coming to you with, uh, with nothing, you know? And he even gets really specific. They can take a staff, like a walking stick. So Jesus is concerned with their knees, which is nice. But then he says, don't take bread. Don't take a bag. And probably like a bag that you could use to ask for money. And he also says, don't bring a money belt either. Leave your, leave your savings behind. Don't stop at the store on your way out. Don't get any supplies. Go out. He does say, not only can you bring a stick, you can also wear sandals. So, he cares about our knees and our feet, which makes sense. You know how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? He's concerned. He doesn't want us to have weird, awkward, ugly feet. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And if you do, you know, don't wear sandals. Wear shoes. We've evolved. No. Uh, but he also tells them not to bring a, a change of clothes. Don't even bring a change of clothes. They're sent into all of these villages where the very first thing that they're going to have to do and ask is not, hey, will you listen to me talk about Jesus? But the very first thing they will have to do is say, hey, I, can you welcome me into your home? And can you feed me? And can you provide for me? And can you care for me? That's the, that's the first part of this strategy. Jesus wants to send them out to these villages where they're going to go and upon arrival be incredibly needy. Deeply needy. They're going to have all power to cast out demons and proclaim the good news, but they're going to need the village to, to be alive in five days. He even gives them this instruction that if one house welcomes you in, you just stay in that house the whole time you're there. You know, like, I'm just moving in until my time here is done. That they would be integrated into the life of these villages, dependent on them and not anything else. Coming, asking for bread. Asking for water. I mean, it sounds a little uh, different, I think, than what we imagine the best way to accomplish some task. But Jesus is actually instructing them that, that the way to make the good news known, the calling that they're taking up, is to actually go in at the very bottom, the very needy, the most helpless. And it's from there that we're supposed to proclaim good news. Uh, this was uh, not true for us when we 
moved to Portland. We were like, felt like we're really self-sufficient people with $500 in the bank, you know? Like, we've got this. I have a job at a rental car company. Uh, we have everything that we need. Uh, we found our own apartment. We did all of this stuff. And then as we, you know, got to know our neighbors uh, and as things got hard or lean, we always wanted to make sure that they knew that we were okay and we were good people, responsible people, you know, like we didn't come here foolishly. We don't need your stuff. You need to come into our house so we can feed you. Like that was the idea until it became impossible for us to portray that image, that we were all together put together nicely and responsible and had everything that we needed. And then we began to ask our neighbors for help. You know, like, uh, can, can you come and help us garden because our garden is out of control? Can we use your truck because we need it to do mulch for the middle school? Uh, can you uh, help us with our marriage? Can you care for me? And to the point where our relationships with these friends uh, became exactly that. A friendship in which we expected and needed their friendship. Not just the things that they would give, though like there, there was this one family that we became very dependent on their Target gift card that they would give us every Thanksgiving-ish. And that's how we did Christmas. It was awesome. Uh, people who don't believe and Jesus, but people that we depended on. We were also just dependent on the relationship that we had with one another. I think often we imagine that, that Jesus is sending us out to be perfect, shining examples of what a human's really supposed to be. And anything less than that disqualifies you from being part of the mission. What Jesus actually instructs these people to do is to intentionally go needy and dependent. It's funny, when we moved here, it was really different. Uh, we were very dependent. Tripp and Jocelyn Forgen found us our apartment. Uh, we never even saw it. We're like, that sounds good. We need that. Uh, we moved here, and we're dependent on all of you. Uh, even this, the lady who held the apartment for us for six weeks uh, in Culver City, that's kind of strange. We were dependent on that relationship that we had with her. We came needy. And I wonder what would happen if we didn't exist outside of the city or above it, but we existed dependent on the city, dependent on our neighbors, needing them to care for us, needing them to be our friends, not as people we uh, look as, man, bless their hearts, to use one of my mom's favorite phrases, but as if, as if we looked at them and said, I, I need this neighborhood for my life. It's a different posture, but that's Jesus' strategy for the kingdom come. You know, and I suspect that we're often embarrassed to have need. It's, it's embarrassing. Uh, but Jesus is saying, I need you to be needy. I need you to be dependent on the people that you're going to. I need you to be part of that. I also think that we want to uh, protect our lives, you know. Um, Jesus wants us to be needy. So that's the instructions and that's the calling. And then we get to this, this last bit, you know, like what's going to happen? 
He told them what to do, gave them the instructions, and then they go out. And this is, if you ever read the Bible very much, uh, these words are just as shocking as 97% of Christians think that the gospel is important. Because if you read the Bible very often, the normal pattern is uh, God or, or Jesus says, hey, uh, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to do it. Then the people, us, we say, yeah, we want to do that. Yes, of course. I mean, we're all familiar with this, right? It's like, hey, we should really hang out sometime. Yes, of course. You know, like we're having dinner with a family tomorrow night that we said we would have dinner with when we moved here two and a half years ago. And this is the first time, right? We're used to that pattern. Like that's the biblical pattern. People say, yes, of course, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do everything that he asks. And then the next line is, they didn't. These words are amazing. Verse 12, it says, so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I mean, these two, like, people obeyed. Jesus called, he instructed them, he gave them power and authority over and over again, and then they went out and they obeyed. They spoke words. They went out and they proclaimed. They preached The people should repent. The word, uh, again, I know I'm dorky with the words today, so I apologize. Next week, no words. This week, words. Uh, Because I think we we miss some things here. Uh, There are times in the New Testament where Jesus, uh, and the the scriptures use this word to evangelize, essentially. to, To say the gospel. To proclaim the gospel. Here, the word is to speak you know, authoritatively, persuasively, uh, in such a way that people understand, and that the, the content of what they're saying is repentance, which I know we, we've talked about, but often we think of repentance as just like, yeah, I'm really terrible, I, I'm, I, I'm a bad person, and God, I want to be a good person. But really, the meaning of repentance is that you change your mind about what life is all about, and you change the course of what life is all about for you. So it's to completely alter your perception, your mental, your mental state on what you think the world is all about and how the world works and what's going on in the world. You change that. It's a heart and mental transformation. Then you say, now I'm going to live a completely different life because the way, the way I thought life was is different now. You know, I thought life was all about survival, making the most of what you can, because no one's going to come and protect you, so you just got to survive. I thought that's what life is all about, but now I see that life is actually about being whole and united and alive with God. So now my life is different. I'm going to live a different way, right? This is what they were doing. These fishermen, tax collectors, were going in and proclaiming that kind of repentance. Change what you believe about God and about life. It's not what you thought before. It's pretty advanced and bold stuff. Uh, That is what we do when we share the gospel. We're saying you need to change what you believe about life, about the world. 
Uh, the same group did another study on uh, people in my age bracket and below and found that uh, 47 people my age and younger uh, believe that it's a wrong to ask someone to change what they believe about the world. Here, it's seen as the very first step of obedience, of going into a village completely needy, going with the friend, being in a, a group of people that come in and say, hey, we're kind of dependent on your village. And, and the first thing what, that we actually want to tell you is the world is different than you think. In fact, what we, what we know to be true about the world is what we also think that you should know about the world. Uh, the same study uh, found that people in the same age group, 75% of us think that the best thing that could happen in someone's life is that they would know Jesus. Yet 47% of us think it's wrong to do so. These men were acting with boldness, preaching a transformation of what they believe and what they think. But it wasn't just that. They also drove out many demons and healed many people. They drove out uh, this driving out, uh, same phrase used to describe David and what he did in the kingdom. David was uh, second king of Israel, and he uh, came to the throne at a time where there were all these other people and militaries that had come into their land. You know, they'd, they'd come in, and they were, were taking up residence and saying, this is our stuff now. And, the, and the, the, the mission of David in the beginning was to drive out these other uh, people, right? It was this military conquest. It's the same sort of language, the exact same language used here about this driving out of unclean spirits. That, that their purpose and the way that they obeyed was they went to all of this brokenness and all of this darkness and evil personified and they said, this is not your land or your territory anymore. You do not belong in these people's lives. You do not belong in this village. And he cast them out. They drove them out of those areas. Reclaiming uh, places that were lost or in captivity, now allowing them to be alive in the kingdom of God. They drove them out. They spoke the truth and they declared the truth, but they also uh, proclaimed it physically as they saw many people be healed and set free from demons. It would be uh, amazing, I think, if, if we witnessed that here in this city. If every part that's dark and gritty and gross was somehow uh, recaptured for life and for light. Uh, that there would be wholeness. It would be amazing if, if every action and every word that we did in this life was done so with this orientation around Jesus and his mission and his kingdom. That, that, this, that the people around us wouldn't just know what we believe, but would be even persuaded, exhorted, encouraged that they would know the truth about God, that they would change their mind about what they believe about the world, 
and live in light of Jesus and the kingdom. I just think it would be a remarkable thing. Um, I, Los Angeles is great. We all, you know, are here. Um, and we are all, um, you know, many of us quite privileged to live somewhere else if we wanted to. You know, we like have decided to live here. There's also so much brokenness and darkness in it, right? The, the systems of, of the world and all the problems that we see, you know, on the news are our problems too, just much more intimate and close, you know. Whether it's uh, the way that we uh, treat women in this city, whether it's the way that we treat the poor, whether it's the way we treat the privileged, like it's just a, kind of a powder keg of things lying beneath the surface. Not too far do you have to go to see intense darkness. I wonder if we awoke each day understanding that we are not sent here by accident, but God has placed us here to not just say good things or do good things, but to be a physical representation of Jesus and the kingdom of God, of Him restoring souls to Himself. That God, as Paul writes, is making His appeal to the world through our lives. That if we had a passion for that, right? You might even say a fervency, You know, that's what we talk about this year. That we would be fervent in living and speaking the truth in this moment, in this culture. Uh, I think that the the tendency at this point is to feel um, like failures, you know. Um, Preparing to preach, it's like, yeah, this is not how I wake up. Um, We've failed to hear his call and take it seriously. Uh, We uh, don't surrender to his power. We live in our own power. Uh, We're independent. We're prideful. Um, You have your own things, I'm sure. We're not bold. We're not obedient. You know, we hear this call and we're not like these guys. We, you know, do our own thing. Uh, We started, though... uh, Hopefully you heard. We start with what is, uh, what is the voice of Jesus that we would see and understand this call in light of him. And even now, as we might consider our own failures to live out this calling of God, I think we have to consider Jesus too and end with that. The, the good news is Jesus sought you Uh, Jesus has pursued you and your life. You are the captive that he came for. Your life and your soul is the territory that he came to reclaim as his very own. He came uh, to bring peace to the war that's within your life. You were... The, the, the end point of his mission. He's accomplished it and is accomplishing it in your life. Jesus came, the way he did that was he surrendered all power. 
Uh, Jesus came needy. Uh, it's almost Christmas time-ish. Jesus came uh, even in the womb of his mother, dependent on someone out there to open a space for him so that he might be born. Came into this world needing many people over and over again to give him water and bread. Something we'll see next week. He came humble and dependent. He came with nothing, and he also came obedient. Obedient to the point of the cross, obedient to the point of resurrection. He spoke life, and he raised death from the grave once and for all. And so we might sit here trembling at our failures to answer the call and to be his agents in this world, But the truth is, He came also for you. That that you would be reconciled also to God. That you would know Him in the power of His life, His death, His resurrection. That it would be pulsating through your life. And that's, that's His voice speaking to us. So let's walk in freedom. That we were made for this. That we've been given the power for this. Uh, Paul also writes that uh, his spirit is within us both to do the will and the work. We've been sent together to overthrow hell itself in every corner of this city. We're sent to be humble and dependent, and we can do that with freedom, knowing that we have everything that we need, even if we run out of bread and water. We're integrated in this city. God's made us dependent on it, whether we see it or not. So let's walk in freedom in this mission. Jesus, thank you for the reality that your name is being made famous through us uh, and despite us, that your spirit has given us all sorts of power and authority God, I pray for belief, a revival of belief in what you've done for us and what you've done in us um, and what you want to do through us. We pray that your kingdom will come and that your will will be done. We also pray for forgiveness and for a delight uh, in your forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.